when craps appear on iPhone touchscreens, and strange and frightening sounds echo on your MP3 player. That is the time when the Neverland Podcast is present, broadcasting online with ghoulish delight. Welcome, foolish listeners, to episode 44. Welcome to Never Never We're going to bring ghosts from all over the world. Join us. Be sure to bring your death certificate. Thank you for downloading this week and joining us here in Haunted Neverland. I am your host, Jeremy, your ghost host. Okay, well, not really. I I am still the pan, and this is still Neverland, and we're still going to have all the fun we usually have. We're just going to have some holiday fun this month, and we're going to kick it off by joining Scott and Tracy Morris with Disney Indiana. They're going to come on, and we're going to talk some fun holiday movies, and after that, we do have a winner on the Who Got Caught on Tape at Toonfest contest. So, stick around. Make sure you have your pixie there with you to sprinkle some of that pixie dust, and let's fly away to Neverland. We're going to have all kinds of fun today, and you're going to love this month. I just know it, unless you absolutely hate this holiday. (laughs) Okay, Neverlanders, we have special guests back on with us. This is the third time they've been here. They're just regular Neverlanders. They are official Lost Boys and a a pixie. Uh, But we have from Disney Indiana, which you can find at DisneyIndiana.com, we have Scott and Tracy again. Yay! Thanks for inviting us back. And I'm not sure which one of us is the pixie or the lost boy, so. <laughs> well, hopefully you're a lost boy and Tracy's a pixie. Because I never heard of lost girls, so I figured, well, they're honorary pixies then. Works for me. She's yeah. the tall, tallest or, 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 pixie I've ever seen. Or I, I could be a Wendy. A Wendy bird. Okay, so Scott and Tracy are here because we're in the month of October and Neverland is officially haunted for October. And we're going to begin haunting. Yes, I know, it's kind of scary. We have the ghosts of pirates running around here, but but it's okay. It's all in the magic, right? So, ooh. Now, we have proton packs in the back because we do go Disney and beyond around here. So if we have to grab our proton packs, then we'll be okay. I have a few spare traps. Um, <laughs> as long as nobody shuts down the containment unit, nothing blows up. But uh, we're going to discuss, you know, first, you know, we've got a lot of things going to come up this week, but we're trying to, of course, keep you a good family-friendly and want to help you have some fun at home and discuss some of the fun that we have. Uh, a lot of people, there's people who are opposed to Halloween, I know, out there and everything, Well, and they take different kind of meetings. Well, for me, Halloween is always about fun and stories and dressing up and getting candy, although I'm not allowed to get the candy anymore. But, you know, I love good, scary-type stories, as long as they're not, you know, grotesque. Uh, I love a good good mystery, good suspenseful, good kind of scary stories. So I have a certain amount of movies that I like to watch every year uh, about this time, and I figure you guys do the same. Oh, yes. We have uh, some movies that, uh, that we like to watch this time of year. Some of them probably wouldn't fit in this list, but uh, we also do like uh, some family-friendly ones as well. We have some recommended movies we're going to talk about. We're going to have some fun with uh, our five kind of favorites of the family-friendly stuff that we have to watch every year. I'll let you all go first. All right. Our number five family-friendly Halloween-ish type movie is Something Wicked This Way Comes from 1983. Hellfire's 
Storms are coming. An electric storm to clean your streets and wash away your troubles. For every heart, there exists a wish. You ever play the numbers, Mr. Holloway? Hey, never take risks. For every soul, there burns a desire. Boy, he's up. Always was. It smells to me like we're gonna have visitors. But never whisper your dreams, for someone might be listening. <laughs> And for every wish, there will be a price. For every desire, there will be a cost. My name is Mr. Dark. I advise you to respect it. Dad, please be careful. Will. Will. Uh, these boys I'm looking for, perhaps you know them? Fine boy, fine. Both of them quite a credit to this little town, if you want to know the truth. I do want to know the truth, sir. And the truth is that you are lying. I am pricking up my thumbs. Something wicked this way come. Then rang the bells, both loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. Where do you come from? The dust. Where do you go to? The grave. Yes. We are the hungry ones. Your torments call us like dogs in the night. And we do feed, and feed well. You tell me where the boys are hiding, and I can make you young again. Ray Bradbury's fantasy tale of light and darkness is getting closer. Something wicked this way comes. That is a Disney movie. In fact, we covered it back in 2009 in our episode 34 of the Disney Indiana podcast. Yep, it stars Jason Robarts, Jonathan Price, and Diane Ladd, and uh, based on a screenplay and a book by Ray Bradbury. This this is a a film, um, like we said, it opened in um, 1983. Um, made we did find out that uh, the opening weekend it made uh, almost two and a half million dollars. It's not it, bad for eighty three. Not for eighty three, and a lifetime gross of almost eight and a half million, eight point four million dollars. Now this is, like I said, one of the films that uh, I I really enjoy. Um, basically, the one reason I love this film so much is the acting of Jonathan Price in this film as Mr. Dark, the owner of a mysterious carnival that uh, shows up in the middle of the night to this small town. And 
fulfills a couple of people's wishes in rather ironic ways. So have either of you ever read the, the book that it was based on? Um, it's been a long time, but yes, I have. And, but I'm, I'm a big fan of Ray Bradbury. In fact, I've got uh, another book of his, The Halloween Tree, on my to-read list for this Halloween. Mm. Yeah, he actually wrote this back, and it started in 1955. Wow. And, and he wrote it not as a book originally. He originally wrote it as a, as a screenplay for his friend Gene Kelly, who wanted to uh, collaborate on a movie with Ray Bradbury. Huh. And um, he had this story that he called The, the Black Ferris, which was about uh, 10 pages long, about a strange carnival and two boys um, and a night with no dawn in sight, is basically how he described it. And so he took that, fleshed it out into about 80-page treatment and gave it to Gene Kelly, who then... Um, read it and said this is going to be the next picture that I'm going to direct and then he he actually took this off to Europe to try to get some financing but unfortunately he wasn't able to find any backers and when he came back uh, Ray liked the what he had done so far so he uh, expanded it into a book that it uh, called something wicked this way comes which was published in 1962 so how does the book compare to the movie is the book a little bit better or is the movie maybe a little better um, it's kind of hard to say. I like them both for different reasons. I mean, the the book I I really like Ray Bradbury's writing, so the book has a lot of uh, lyricism to it that kind of comes across in the script. But then again, how can you discount the? Uh, Jonathan Price's yes, Mr. Dark that is was just, inspired casting. Yeah, I mean. If you don't know who Jonathan Price is, what was it, Lexus commercials from a few years ago? Or Some, Infinity. One of the high-end car companies he was doing commercials for, and he's, is he British? Yes, and he's also been a James Bond villain. Yes, he was a James Bond villain. He was the that newspaper mag- or media magnet that was yeah. trying to manipulate the um, world news for his benefit. Oh, okay, so that guy, so that's Tomorrow Never Dies. That's the same man that was also in Pirates of the Caribbean. What He was the governor. Oh, yes, I forgot he was yes. in Pirates. <laughs> yeah, I uh, keep seeing him pop up in a lot of older movies, and he is always very good. But if he's playing Mr. Dark, wow, i got to watch this now. <laughs> and there is an absolutely creepy scene in this film near the beginning where there's, uh, no, it's near the end, excuse me, where there's a parade in the town uh, for the carnival with... Um, Jonathan Price leading the parade, and he's out. Actually, he's looking for the kids, and it's just very. The music is adds to the creepiness. It's just, it's really, really good. My number five was Hocus Pocus, released in 1993, starring the the lovely and talented Bette Midler, Kathy and Jimmy, and Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, before the whole Sex in the City thing, you know, so she was still famous, but not as famous as she would be. The bones and then the back. Here to decapitate Back in 1693, the people of Salem, Massachusetts, witches, yes, thought they got rid of the Sanderson sisters for good. Uh, we shall be back. <laughs> Three hundred years later, it's Halloween Eve, and they're back. <laughs> uh, 
Are you boys a little old to be trick-or-treating? We're talking about three ancient hags versus the 20th century. How bad can it be? Now they're digging up old friends. And running amok. Looking for the one thing they miss most. Do stay for supper. I'm not hungry. But we are. Only one boy has the power to stop them. Prepare to die again! You have no powers here, you fool! Before all Salem falls under their spell. I tell you! Walt Disney Pictures presents Bette Midler. Hello. Sarah Jessica Parker. Would thou dance with me? And Kathy Najimi. Hocus Pocus. Into the night! They love to fly. And it shows. Good night. Sleep tight. No screaming. <laughs> but there are three witches and they have one Halloween night to consume the soul of a child or die. Now, this was interesting. I found out it was directed by Kenny Ortega, who directed Newsies and also did the High School Musical series. Yep. And this is another Disney movie as well. Yes, it's another Disney movie. Uh, so we're going Disney for now, but I will go beyond eventually. Uh, but this also had some uh, some child stars like Thora Birch, who later popped up in American Beauty. I won't say what she was doing in there. Uh, <laughs> I've Vanessa seen that Shaw, who had previously been in Ladybugs, which uh, I think is kind of an underrated movie. I used to like that when I was a kid. It was a Rodney Dangerfield movie, and he was trying to get his son uh, to play on a, his girls team that he was coaching. And so Soccer he team, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a soccer game, a soccer team. He, he he put his son in a wig and had him pretend to be a girl. And Vanessa Shaw played the girl that his son had a crush on on the team. Uh, also featured Jack Kay in that movie. But anyways, I digress. Uh, and then Omri Katz was a child on Dallas, and he was the the lead male character on there. Um, now the 1994 TV documentary Hocus Pocus Begin the Magic and it's also on the Blu-ray release uh, producer David Kirchner said that he came up with the idea for the film one night and he and his young daughter were sitting outside and his neighbor's black cat strayed by and Kirchner invented the tale of how the cat was once a boy who was changed into a feline 300 years ago by three witches and it had been intended to be a Disney Channel movie but it did catch the attention of the big the bigger studios and it was mildly profitable uh, it had a budget of of 28 million and on its opening weekend it did well a little well a little bit over 8 million on its opening weekend but its overall gross in the United States was 30, over 39 million so overall you know it's it's not like a this super successful movie but it was successful enough and I still have fun watching it every year. It is it is goofy, uh, and uh, you're supposed to be kind of, I guess, somewhat afraid of the witches because they can be so nasty. But they're just so funny, and Bette Midler is good at being just just so wickedly funny about it. Uh, I love like the bits where she you know does this little bit of a spell thing and turns the kid around and she's like hello, and just just great fun with the the three main witches. You could watch them the entire time and just laugh your heads off and forget. Oh, that's right. There's these three kid characters we're supposed to be following around too. So <laughs> yeah, the the main thing I remember, and I may have even been in the commercials for that film, but 
I think it was Bed Mittler that tells Kathy Najimi's character, are you, are you just running amok? And then Kathy Najimi goes, amok, 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 amok. <laughs> yep. That's actually, that's Sarah Jessica Parker who starts going, amok, 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 because oh, okay. she's the dumb one. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the only, I've never seen the film either, but I have seen uh, Bette Midler's cover of I Put a Spell on You from oh, that film. Yes. Which is one of my favorite. I'm also a big Halloween music fan, and I mm-hmm. love Screaming Jay Hawkins' version of "I Put a Spell on You," and the, this cover is a lot of fun. Oh yes, and I need to find more covers of that. Right now, the only cover I've managed to find for my Halloween collection is the uh, the Creedence Clearwater Revival did a really good version of "I Put a Spell on You," which I have that one, but I haven't found the Screaming Jay Hawkins one. Ah. But yes, the the Bet the Bet Midler one. I've seen the, a video of just of that scene, but I've I've not watched the movie itself. Oh well, there's something on your homework list. <laughs> Have you seen it, Tracy? I don't recall having seen that. I remember watching several other Bet Midler movies from that time period, but I don't think I ever made it to Hocus Pocus. Yeah, the, oh. the biggest one I remember from her from that time period was um, Ruthless People. So. Which is not terribly family friendly either. (laughs) Or Halloween friendly. Yeah. (laughs) They do wear masks. That's true. (laughs) And there is a creepy clown in it, so. (laughs) You can make anything work as long as you have a creepy clown. There you go. There you go. Okay, so we'll move on to your number four. Uh, our number four, we're going to go back. This is probably, I'm guessing this might be one of the oldest films. I know it's the oldest one on our list. And we're going to go back to 1948. Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meet Frankenstein. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. The nation's top comics, Abbott and Costello, petrified, but hilariously. Plus the dangerous and terrifying Wolfman, played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman, Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. Plus the most dreaded creature of them all, the Frankenstein monster, played by Glenn Strange. Plus a couple of luscious but designing females in the spookiest laugh fest on record. a great film especially if you've never seen the the classic universal monsters this is a great introduction to those if you're thinking they may be too scary for you because you've got bud abbott and luke costello uh to to lead you through that 
Yeah, I think they met all the Universal monsters at some point, didn't they? Because I think I've seen one that was uh, where they met Dracula, and they start out as two characters. They're working at uh, like a train station, and Dracula's coffin actually that, gets that's shipped. This, that's, that's this movie. This film. It's, oh, it's this called one? yes. It's cause... called Meet Frankenstein, but they actually meet Dracula, the Fra- uh, Frankenstein's monster, and, and the, the Wolfman. Wolf oh, so I did watch this one. Okay. And they've actually got Bella Lugosi, the original Dracula for Universal, playing mm-hmm. Dracula. Lon Chaney Jr. playing Lawrence Talbot, a.k.a. the Wolfman, who was the original Wolfman for Universal. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they didn't get Boris Karloff playing um, the monster. It's actually Glenn Strange in this film. Who played uh, Frankenstein's monster in some of the sequels, if I remember correctly. The whole thing starts off, you've got the wolfman who's in London at the time. Werewolves of London or something. No, he wasn't a werewolf. (laughs) But um, there's the Dracula's coffin and Frankenstein's monster are being shipped to a house of horrors. McDougal's house of horrors, I think it's called, in Florida. Well, Abbott and Costello play Chuck and Wilbur, who are at a... um, Shipping Depot. Yeah, they're like an early version of UPS. Mm-hmm. And they actually deliver the the two crates to the McDougal's, and they have to deliver them at night. And, of course, Dracula rises, and he has this whole plan that he is going to take Frankenstein's monster and basically use him as his servant, because every other servant that he's had has you know, been helpful to him. So he's thinking that if he can get somebody that he can totally control, he'd be good. Well, unfortunately, Frankenstein's monster, the the current brain that he has is failing, and so he's got to get a new brain, and Dracula has his eyes on Lou Costello to put Lou Costello's brain into the monster. I'm not sure how much of an improvement that would be. (laughs) But like I said earlier, this is a great film. If you've never seen any of the Universal Monsters... And you want to see what they're like. This will give you a taste of it. And But you got the comfort of the comedy going along with it as well. The Wolfman, uh, he actually teams up with them. And there's, there's a scene when the Wolfman comes to Florida. And it's a full moon. And before the full moon comes out, he actually locks himself in the hotel room. Yeah. Because he's afraid of what he's going to do when he becomes the Wolfman. Well, Costello keeps trying to to go in there to talk with Lawrence Talbot, and because he doesn't know about his wolfish tendencies. Yes, so it, <laughs> it's it's a really funny scene. But then you get you know later on you get the whole you know, the Wolfman is basically trying to stop Dracula and Frankenstein, and he, en- <laughs> he enlists Abbott and Costello to help him. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. Yes, it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's even a, a cameo. Uh, from another universal monster uh, at the end of the film but you may not see him because it's the invisible man <laughs> you know for a family to watch this one this this is a good one all right well i'll move on to my number four which has a couple moments that aren't exactly family friendly but for the most part it's it's pretty family friendly it's a bit weird but i would maybe say uh, older children, I think though I was probably around in the fifth grade when I first saw this movie. It's about the time when it came out, but this is Beetlejuice. 
from the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Adam and Barbara are... Ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Who's no ordinary ghost. Yeah, you don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Now, the party's over. You want somebody out of the house? I want to get somebody out of your house. <laughs> but the fun has just begun. It's showtime. Learn to throw your voice, boy, your friends, butter party. Not bad. This is amazing. Want a cigarette? Oh, no, thank you. Oh, yeah, here I come, baby. He's guaranteed to put some life. Attention, King Workshoppers. In your afterlife. Michael Keaton is Beetlejuice. And the ghost with the most pain. This was released in 1988 and introduced to me, at least, uh, Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin, Tim Burton, and Danny Elfman. Uh, they had been around probably before that, but this is the first time I'd ever paid attention because I had seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but I, at the time I was kind of young and I didn't pay attention to Tim Burton was being the director and uh, Danny Elfman being the uh, composer to it. Uh, but also, this is the first movie I saw Catherine O'Hara in and Winona Ryder. I think actually this was her first movie. And then also Jeffrey Jones rounds out the, the family, uh, the Dietzes that are moving into their home. And, of course, the big selling point have a Michael Keaton, which uh, he is, you just have all kinds of comedy genius just put into this movie. All of them are really hilarious on their own, and you put them all together, and he just got this really great dark comedy. You will never listen to Harry Belafonte the same way again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it didn't take until later with the Muppets that I really started to understand that that was Harry Belafonte and... Uh, He's got a great guest appearance on The Muppets and everything you guys have probably seen that's just oh, wonderful yes. how to do Deo. <laughs> this is the first time you're going to do it on television? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and absolutely love that. I even love he's got a Christmas song that I really love hearing too. But uh, I digress. <laughs> but uh, here's here's some interesting things I, I dug up here. Uh, with uh, Michael McDowell's original script is far less comedic and it was actually much more violent. Uh, the Maitland's car crash was going to be depicted graphically, and Barbara's arm was going to be crushed. And you see the couple screaming for help as they slowly drown into the river. And uh, there is a reference that actually remained in all versions of the script was Barbara remarks that her arm feels cold upon returning home as a ghost. And instead of possessing the Dietzes and forcing them to dance during dinner, the Maitlands cause a vine-patterned carpet to come to life and attack the Dietzes by tangling them in their chairs. Uh, and then the character of Beetlejuice was envisioned by McDonald as a winged demon who takes on the form of a short Middle Eastern man. And he's also intent on killing the Dietzes rather than scaring them. And he wants to, well, I'm not going to say what he wants to do with Lydia instead of marry her, uh... But, uh, yeah, he, 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 in order to be exhumed, he only needs his grave to be summoned, and then he's free to wreak havoc, and he doesn't have the whole thing of saying his name three times where you can control him. But it was a completely different thing, and would not have at all been family-friendly. Probably would have been a nice R stuck on there. Uh, and then Warren Scarron did a complete rewrite and uh, shifted the film's tone, and especially the graphic nature, took that out and everything, added some comedy into it, and then... Uh, 
there was actually a, a point where there was going to be two different limbos, though, that when they left the house, that uh, we were going to see Adam was going to go into an empty void with, like, giant clock gears that were shredding the fabric of time and space anytime you moved and things like that. Uh, but you never really get to see that, but you do get to see the Sandworm world, which is identified as Sanders Moon Titan. Uh, made with a $15 million budget, it grossed over $73 million when they first released it in the United States. That's impressive. Yes, and they're talking sequel. They, uh, there's always rumors that, that they're going to make a sequel to that film. Yeah, the rumors kind of get tossed around a lot on that, but I, you know, I, I don't know where you'd go with it. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of that way too. I'm not sure where else you could take that story. All you have to do is have Beetlejuice show up, maybe with a, having a different sort of adventure, because I guess he's the only character you really need to follow up on. That's true. So you could put, throw him into, you know, maybe you could set the entire movie somewhere in the, the weird afterlife that you only get to see a little bit of, like, inside the social services type of office with all the kind of fun colors and different things that's very much out of the mind of Tim Burton. Uh, you know, maybe expand on that a little bit. Now, I do remember that they made a kid's TV cartoon. Yes, Beetlejuice. And I was disappointed that it didn't resemble the movie at all. <laughs> Not so much. Because <laughs> suddenly him and uh, and uh, Lilia Dietz was best buddies. And I was like, what? Didn't you? Okay. Or Lydia, not Lilia. Yeah, yeah. It didn't make any sense. So I, I couldn't get into the show. I think I watched the first episode on a Saturday morning and I was all excited to watch it. And then I was like, what is this? <laughs> Well, I, I've got an advanced sneak peek at your at your list, and I can think of a children's show on another one of your films that I had the same feeling about. Hmm. But, and we'll get to it. <laughs> we'll get to it. <laughs> so, your number three. Our number three is, we're going back to our Disney roots here, is Watcher in the Woods. Something happened in these woods. Something that has never been explained. And it's happening again. Now. Did you hurt yourself? Oh, it's just a little cut. What sort of person are you? Sensitive? Do you sense things? The past pursues the present like a recurring dream. What began as a game ended when a young girl vanished into thin air. That was my daughter's name. What do you think happened to Karen? I think she's still out there. Karen is trying to come back. What did you see? I Karen outside there. Don't you understand? It's someone else. Only Jan can help Karen. But who's going to help Jan? Betty Davis, Carol Baker, David McCallum. Lynn Holly Johnson. Whatever happened to my Karen could happen to you. The Watcher in the Woods. 
from 1980. And we covered that in last year's Halloween episode, episode 139, on October 27th, 2013. Now, Watcher, it. Watcher in the Woods stars the great Betty Davis, Lynn Holly Johnson, and Kyle Richards. It's amazing to see Betty Davis in a Disney film. Now, this film um, was, uh, we don't have, uh, we have the lifetime gross of this film of $5 million. Wow, not much. Well, for, you know, 1980, yeah. it's, it's different. Yeah, that's not bad at 1980. <laughs> now, I do have another James Bond uh, connection because Holly Lynn Johnson was a Bond girl later on. Ah. Now, she plays the, the young girl in this film. Uh, but she was in uh, For Your Eyes Only in 1981, the very next year. Huh. Which I haven't seen that one. I know it's sad. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you seen The Watcher in the Woods? No, I haven't. But I have seen uh, with the Disney Movie Rewards Club, you can get a copy of the DVD using your reward points. And I've been thinking about it. I'm like, well, I've kind of heard of it now. And uh, I've heard kind of mixed reviews. Uh, some people said that it's it's worth watching, but you wouldn't really want to own a copy. Well, this this film did have kind of a checkered past when it was being made, because basically the story is there's three little kids at the beginning that are playing around with this friendship, um, occult type saying. It's kind of mixed together, and through a, a series of events, one of them actually gets um, taken to another realm. And something comes into our realm to replace her. And it's, um, turns out it's, it's Betty Davis's daughter. And there's a family that comes into this, to the house where this had happened that uh, Betty Davis. Was it what, 20 years later? 20, 20 or 25 years later, there's a house that Betty Davis owns. She's still living in there, but she can't afford to to keep the big house. So it's, she's living in like the little tiny guest house and renting out the big house. And this family comes with a girl that's uh, was about her daughter's age at the same time. And this, this is Holly Lynn Johnson. And there's something in the woods that is kind of terrifying her and her younger sister. And they kind of go through this, um, investigation to try to figure out what's going on. Of course, nobody believes her when she starts discovering things she meets the two other kids that were in the original um, you know playing now they're adults but they're afraid of going into the woods and like I said this kind of had a checkered past because originally it was going to have some scenes where we would go into this alternate realm and they had all these plans well they weren't able to afford what they wanted to do and so some of the um, the scenes actually uh, Anchor Bay put out a uh, a special edition a couple of years ago that has some of these scenes and how it was not completely done uh, special effects wise. And you can see where, why they had to make different changes and there's an alternate ending and everything hmm. than than it was originally done. Now the, the watcher in the woods, you also, you don't see him till the very end. And the best I can describe is if you've ever seen the evil dead movie, Mm -hmm. the original the second one anyway well uh, yeah you know how they portray the, the 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 demons with the camera just running through the woods and stuff yeah they do that in this film so you, you you don't have until the very end the reveal and again 
it's a lack of funds hurts the 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 monster at the end. Oh, that's disappointing. That's probably why there's people who are kind of iffy on it is because maybe it didn't have the budget to do it as well as they could have, but the story apparently still would hold oh, yeah. up. If you can look past the the shortcomings of the budget, this the, I thought the story was really good. I thought uh, Betty Davis was amazing. I mean, isn't she, she usually? <laughs> yes, <laughs> but she is really good. And this is one that not a lot of people, you know, this isn't a go to movie. A lot of people don't have, haven't seen it or have never heard of it. So, The Watcher in the Woods, I highly recommend it. Okay. Well, my number three has a couple of moments that uh, I remember I saw this as a kid, and there's a couple of moments I didn't understand as a child that are not as family-friendly as you like, but at least it doesn't drop uh, any specific words that Beetlejuice does, and that's really the only major problem with Beetlejuice, uh, other than a few others' behavior. Uh, This one's a little bit easier and more family-friendly with some of the goofy humor, but this is Young Frankenstein. (laughs) It's coming from the deep, dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks. I love him. Frankenstein! As Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. But what about your grandfather's work, sir? My grandfather's work was doo-doo! Peter Boyle as the monster. (laughs) Marty Feldman as Igor. My grandfather used to work for your grandfather. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Loris Leachman as Frau Blucher. You played that music in the middle of the night. To get us into the laboratory. Yes! And it was you who left my grandfather's book out for me to find. Yes! So that I would... Yes! Then you and Victor were... Say it. He was my boyfriend! Terry Gar as Inga. Would you like to have a roll in the hay? Roll, roll, roll in the hay. Kenneth Mars. As the inspector. And Madeline Kahn as Elizabeth. Where am I? Calm down. What are you going to do to me? I'm not afraid of you. Listen, I, I have to be back by 11.30. I'm expecting a very important call. See Mel Brooks, Young Frankenstein. Yes, I think we could all use a good laugh. But don't see it alone. Don't miss Young Frankenstein, personally directed by Mel Blazing Saddles Brooks in black and white. No offense. And oh, a classic. 
Yes. <laughs> now, this is where everybody now triggers the dramatic prairie dog and remembers dun 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 because that was actually from this movie. Yep. But it was released in 1974 and was first written by star Gene Wilder. And then when he asked Mel Brooks to direct, Brooks helped him to rewrite the script. And uh, actually, I guess they uh, he had kind of the idea and he, he had shared it with Mel Brooks and everything. And before he really kind of got a lot of that help is a lot of what I was finding. Uh, but it stars Peter Boyle. Otherwise, you know, Gene Wilder is the big star. But Peter Boyle, of course, is the monster. Absolutely hilarious. Uh, it's a sad loss that he has since passed away. Terry Gar, which I believe this was her first movie, and she's very hilarious in this. Madeline Kahn, who's always funny and unfortunately has also since passed away. Cloris Leachman, who is always fun in whichever fashion that you get her. Sometimes she's family friendly, sometimes she's not. Frau Blucher. <laughs> exactly. That's one of the best bits. And, of course, my favorite guy in there, the genius of Marty Feldman. <laughs> um, what up? <laughs> I love... You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? I ain't got no body and nobody cares for me. Igor, Frederick. Igor, would you give me a hand with the bags? Certainly. You take the blonde and I'll take the one in the toilet. Marty Feldman, he is so great in this. Uh, but th- some interesting things I did find on here is while shooting, the cast ad-libbed several jokes that were used in the film. Uh, Cloris Leachman actually improvised a scene in which Frau Blucher offers <laughs> warm milk. <laughs> warm milk and double team to Dr. Frankenstein, while Marty Feldman surreptitiously moved his character's lump from shoulder to shoulder until someone noticed it, and the gag was added to the film. Didn't you used to have that lump on the other side? What hump? <laughs> uh, Brooks has declared young Frankenstein his favorite among his own films. Uh, and in one of the scenes of a village assembly, one of the authority figures says that they already know what Frankenstein is up to based on five previous experiences. And on the DVD commentary track, Mel Brooks says this is a, refer- a reference to the first five Universal films. Uh, and in the Gene Wilde DVD interview, he says the film is based on Frankenstein from 1931, Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, Son of Frankenstein from 1939, and The Ghost of Frankenstein from 1942. And as a fun fact, the equipment in the lab was actually the same from those classic Frankenstein movies. And uh, there's a, a really nice thing on the bonus features where Gene Wallace was talking about how excited he was when they fired it up and all the little things actually still worked. Uh, this had a budget of $2,800,000 and it grossed $86 million. And this was 1974. And it's probably making even more money now with the, like, you know, they keep putting it on DVD. Uh, we... The funny thing is we already had a copy of Spaceballs, but then you know we wanted to get a copy of Young Frankenstein. We couldn't find it anywhere, and then finally we found it dueled together with Spaceballs. And my wife and I were like, we don't care that we already have Spaceballs. We have to buy this just so we get Young Frankenstein. Yeah, we, we ended up buying the Blu-ray box set of Mel Brooks films. Oh, Where wow. We'd already had quite a few of them, but again, it was worth it for all the extras. Yeah, so it's got uh, Young Frankenstein. It's got Blazing Saddles. Um, the producers, high, the producers, high anxiety, um, to be or not to be, just it's wonderful. Wow, a lot of movies I still haven't seen yet in there too. But yes, big fans of Young Frankenstein. Uh, we actually, or 
did we go see the musical? Yes. Over at Purdue? Yes. Did you did you know that they made this into a musical? Yeah, I did see that on Google, but I didn't really think I'd have time to kind of investigate it. Uh, but I was like, oh, musical, I hope that comes to Kansas City. <laughs> yeah, we actually went to a... Um, a it, touring production. Yes, uh, here in town, because uh, uh, we live near Purdue University, and they had a showing of it there. And, of course, everyone knows the, the big song from the movie, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, of course, that's in there, and there's a lot of great songs that have, were added to it. And I, I love to listen to the, uh, the, the soundtrack from the, from the musical as well. Just love this film. You know, love all the pop culture. I mean, you can just quote this movie for days, and, you know, some of the stories that you hear about it where, you know, where did Aerosmith get the idea for Walk This Way? From this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, a, this is a wonderful, well, I mean, as I mentioned earlier when we talked about um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, this is another film that is a good gateway into the Universal Monster films because it's, it's playing on a lot of those uh, traits. And it, especially if you've seen these films and then you watch Young Frankenstein, or in it's my, even funnier. Or in my case, vice versa. I'd seen Young Frankenstein many times growing up while I hadn't seen the original 1931 Frankenstein until just recently here. And so I'm like, oh, so that's where that came from. Oh, okay. Now I get that joke. <laughs> Young Frankenstein, great film. Lots of fun. Very funny. Now, there is a couple of scenes that for littler kids, they Are, may not understand. Right. right over their heads. I mean, sweet mystery of life. <laughs> yeah. Very funny bit. But yeah, when I was a kid, I didn't get that at all. It didn't oh. make any sense to me. <laughs> so it's great if you've seen it as a kid and not seen it as an adult, you'll get more jokes when you watch it as an adult. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like when you watch Blazing Saddles on TV and they've edited it and then you watch it uh, with the unedited R version. And you're like, holy cow. <laughs> a movie that they could never make today. <laughs> exactly. But probably one of the funniest movies ever made. Yes. <laughs> but not family-friendly, so we can't officially recommend it on the Neverland podcast. But we can recommend Young Frankenstein because for the most part, it's it's pretty good, pretty clean. You can you can sit down with maybe your older kids, sort of like Beetlejuice. Your older kids probably better, not the younger ones. But you're number two. Which can be uh, watched by the entire family. Hooray! Yep, so we're going back just over 20 years to 1993's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Welcome to an extraordinary world filled with magic and wonder. Open your mind and let yourself go to a place where every day is Halloween. And every night, Jack Skellington... I am the Pumpkin King! <laughs> ...dreams of something different. What is this? It's someplace new. Jack, look out! Whoa! What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. Was this a <laughs> What is this? Haven't you heard of peace on earth and goodwill toward men? 
Touchstone Pictures presents the enchanting story of two very special dreamers and the holiday spirit that brought them together. From the imagination of Tim Burton comes The Nightmare Before Christmas. And what did Santa bring you, honey? Which we covered way back October of 2008 in our episode number seven. Long time ago. <laughs> on a podcast somewhere in Indiana. Yes. It's a state of mind. But then with, with The Nightmare Before Christmas, you've got Tim Burton... You've got um, Danny, Elfman. Danny Elfman's wonderful, wonderful music and acting, and I mean singing, because he's the singing voice of Jack. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, Chris Sarandon the, as the, um, the, the, I guess, the talking voice of yeah. Jack. I don't know what else you would call him. but Yeah, best known for being Prince Humperdinck. Actually, for me, he uh, he was better known as the cop in Child's Play. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> a completely different area. That's not so child-friendly there. <laughs> no, but that's, that's, when I first saw this, that's where my mind went. Because I, <laughs> my or, mind's wired weird. But <laughs> that's or okay, staying, so staying with the Halloween theme, Fright Night. Yep. <laughs> Again, not family-friendly. But... And we can also uh, make a call back to Catherine O'Hara, who you mentioned in Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Yep. She's Sally in this film. Yeah, suddenly we find out she can really sing good. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite character in the film, actually because I really like uh, Oogie Boogie a lot, and I love his song that uh, is done by Ken Page. Yes, which uh, when I first saw the movie, I was like, wait a minute, that's the alligator from All Dogs Go to Heaven. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because I love his song in that, too. <laughs> but just what amazes me in this film is all, of, of course, the stop motion animation mm-hmm. and how wonderful and exciting that is. But what always gets me is you see this film and the first thing you think of is Tim Burton, but he's yeah. not the director of this film. Right. It's Harry Selleck who is the, uh, the director. Yeah, it was Tim, Tim Burton's was, idea. It was, yeah. Oh, yeah. He actually got this idea. Uh, what I was uh, reading is he was in a department store uh, about the time that the department store was taking down the Halloween decorations and putting up the Christmas decorations. Mm-hmm. And got the idea. And he actually originally had written this as a poem. Yep. Which, if I remember correctly, we read in our episode. Yes. Yeah, and it's even on the uh, the Blu-ray release. You can actually watch. They've even done some kind of neat lot of a little bit of a uh, not really animated it, but you know they've done like different artwork for it. And I believe they have Patrick Stewart reading the poem to yes. you, if I remember. Yeah, because Patrick Stewart is the narrator in the mm-hmm. film. Uh, we've been fans of this film for a long time. We actually have the Laserdisc box set for oh. Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas. Wow. <laughs> For those of you that can remember what a laser disc is, yeah, <laughs> which came with a great hardback book on some of the behind-the-scenes uh, art, some of Tim Burton's art, and pictures of the sets and stuff as well. 
Yeah, I was a little late becoming a fan of this movie because when I when it had first come out, I had heard so much hype and how great it was and everything that I sat down. It didn't live live up to how everybody had hyped it to me. And I thought, well, this was kind of neat stylized and I like the music, but it seems the plot's a little weak. But every time I watch it, I've appreciated it more and more every time until the last time I watched it, it finally hit that dark comedy moment and I was laughing my way through it. And I says, this is actually really funny when you when you really pay attention and look at it. So it's like there's there's some comic genius actually going on in this. And there's actually a callback to one of your uh, films, you know, Beetlejuice, because there's a couple of it looks like the sand uh, worms show up in this film. Yeah. Which is, you know, another Tim Burton film. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out to uh, Disneyland when they do the Nightmare Before Christmas takeover of the Haunted Mansion, the Haunted Mansion Holiday. Nope, I've only been to Disney World, and that was only one time, and I've never been to Disneyland. But uh, some friends of mine uh, did go, uh, they took my camera with them, and they went to Disneyland and rode it, and I got to watch the video that they took of it, and it is really cool. Yes, it actually shows up there, and also Tokyo Disneyland does it. From from what I understand, they actually made two sets of you know some of the props and stuff, and Florida decided that they didn't want it, and so it went to Tokyo Disneyland instead. And now everybody in Florida going, "What? They didn't want it." <laughs> well, Florida's excuse was a lot. They don't have the built-in base of people that go there all the time that want to see something different. Florida is mostly a tourist destination. And yeah. they were afraid that, you know, somebody spent, saved up all this money and they want to go there. They want to see the Haunted Mansion as the Haunted Mansion. They don't want to see a one-off type thing or, you know, something that's only there for two months. I mean, I, Although, can, I bet some people would make the trip just to see that version yeah. of the Haunted Mansion. I can understand. I don't agree, but I can understand that argument because one of the things that they used to do, they don't do anymore, but they used to refit the uh, Country Bears into a holiday show as well. Right. But, uh, yeah, and I've actually seen uh, you know your your nightmare of a right small world when it's done up for Christmas. It it just it's ten times better. Oh, I I, I agree. Um, small world at Christmas time is better. Yeah, it's boy. I tell you what, even even just watching video of what they do in Disneyland with that, I, it'll get to you. It'll especially if you love Christmas like I do. Then you just I I one of these days I'm going to get to Disneyland during Christmas just to do that, and of course the Haunted Mansion holiday. Highly uh, recommended. But yeah, Haunted, um, this film, when it was uh, released, um, opening weekend made $191,000, but its lifetime gross is $75 million. Yeah, a lot of DVD sales, and they keep finding ways to re-release it, and we'll buy it again. Yeah, oh, it's in 3D. Okay, got to buy it again. And, well, we went to see it in 3D, and we just saw today where it's being re-released to theaters certain theaters certain theaters amc and cinemark theaters i think it is for three days only uh this year it's going to be shown on halloween night uh november 2nd and november 5th in theaters and unfortunately nowhere close to disney indiana so we'll just have to watch our blu-ray our our laser disc again I'll just have to take a look because our uh, our AMC here locally actually did show one of the movies on my list for its 30th anniversary. So they seem to like to do special events over there. So I'll I'll just have to take a look because especially if they're going to show it in 3D because I I hear the 3D was amazing. The 3D was a lot of fun. Uh, they actually um, one of the things I thought was a lot of was really cool was 
when they tell you to put your 3D glasses on for this film, um, as soon as they tell you that, they have the the pumpkin jack in the box jump out at you. Oh. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, speaking of the, the holiday version of the Haunted Mansion where they do this stuff, that's actually been something that I've heard is kind of a – I don't know if it's controversial or anything. but uh, And that, that would be something, at least for me, that I would kind of wonder about. Like if, if on Halloween, around, around October, I went to Disneyland, I would probably want to see the Haunted Mansion as the Haunted Mansion and not done up in a Christmas theme. But uh, So I've always wondered why haven't they thought that maybe they could throw in – some of the characters from Nightmare Before Christmas, like go ahead and put Jack in there in place, and maybe oh, some of the other characters, but don't add the Christmas decorations. Just add the characters uh-huh. in, and maybe do some recordings for maybe them just being Halloween, so they actually get like a Halloween version. And then all they have to do is make you know they add the additional things to turn it to Christmas, and then you actually have a Halloween version and then a Christmas version, and you actually get two aspects of the Nightmare Before Christmas. I, I can understand. what but then again, you're going to talk about having it be shut down for another period of time because now it usually goes down early September and it's down for most of the month to put this to put the uh, um, overlay on, and then it's open until just after Christmas time, and then it's down for another three four weeks where they take everything back out, and so you don't want to have multiple downtimes for the attraction. Yeah. It's so it's like like a wishful thinking that oh, if only they could do it like this. But, but yeah. now I'm I'm picturing you know the graveyard scene at the end where they you throw in Jack, you throw in the mayor, you throw in a bunch of the other char- characters and and have them making Christmas. I don't or or this is Halloween, you know, singing that mm-hmm. song. Or something yeah. Like that. If you if they could do something like that and then be able to just throw the, you know the rest of the pieces on there, so like use the exact same gel, uh, Jack. And Zero and everybody who's already there, but don't, ha- you know, maybe Jack's not wearing the Santa hat yet. Maybe he's just wearing his regular garb and greeting you into the graveyard now, you know. So kind of a, a layered uh, overlay is what you're aiming for. Yeah, where you, you do a big your big chunky overlay and then you layer the next layer to finish it off for Christmas. So maybe you could actually cut down that, that downtime a little bit. Wishful thinking, I know, but it would be really cool. Armchair Imagineering. Armchair Imagineering, or find a way to build its own ride and then actually put that in Walt Disney World so they can have one. There is, if you do a search for haunted, uh, excuse me, if you do a search for the Nightmare Before Christmas attraction, there is some plans that have been um, shown out on the internet for an attraction that was going to be built at Walt Disney World, or at least planned. They never actually built it, of course, but... Mm. But as we've been learning from your podcast this year, no good idea ever goes wasted. And if you want to learn more about that, maybe an upcoming episode of our show, we're going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, there's another excuse to listen to Disney Indiana if you're not already. Okay, but we better get rolling here because this is going to be a very long show. So I'm going to go ahead with my number two. And I'm going Disney, and I'm going classic Disney. The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Ichabod and 
adventures and escapades of that rich, reckless, uproarious rake. The magnificent Mr. Toad and his crazy cronies, Mr. Rat and Mr. Mole, as they step out of the pages of Kenneth Graham's hilarious tale, The Wind in the Willows, as told by that inimitable storyteller, Basil Rathbone. For a rollicking ride through Sleepy Hollow, Walt and Bing bring to laughable, colorful life Washington Irving's exciting legend with that awkward schoolmaster, Ichabod Crane. Ichabod may be quaint, maybe odd and maybe he ain't. Anyway, there's no complaint from Ichabod, Ichabod Crane. Ichabod Crane, daring, reckless, losing his heart to Katrina the cutie, and his head when pursued by the hair-raising headless horseman. <laughs> Even if I tend to fall asleep during Mr. Toad, I know it's crime. What? I've seen the whole what? thing. <laughs> I know. Well, I usually, because I, I, especially here lately, because I have just a few hours usually that I'm home before I have to crash. And so I'll go through and I'll, I'll watch it around Halloween mainly because I'm going to watch Ichabod. And then Mr. Toad will come on and I'm like, okay, well, let's watch Mr. Toad. And then I can't help it. By the time he's locked in prison, I fall asleep. And so I end up missing where they, they where they break him out and take back uh, uh, Toad Hall and everything, uh, but it's it is a great one. I just for some reason I just fall asleep sometimes during Mr. Toad, usually because it kind of gets you know a little later for me. And I know it's sad, but I still love Mr. Toad too. But uh, anyways, this was released in 1949 and features. Features Basil Rathbone, who is best known for playing Sherlock Holmes, and he narrates Mr. Toad. Also, I believe he's the Sheriff of Nottingham in the old Errol Flynn Robin Hood, or was he Prince John? Offhand, either. No, not offhand. I know he was in them, but I can't remember which which he played. Uh, but then it also, of course, uh, Bing Crosby gets to tell the chilling tale of the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Love and, that song. Uh, and the the fun thing is this was directed by James, I think it's pronounced Algar, uh, and two other men. But Algar is, of course, of more note. Uh, James Algar studied at Stanford where he developed his skills as a cartoonist by drawing for the university's satirical magazine, The Chaparral. Uh, and he joined the Disney organization in 1934, initially as an animator, and he directed the classic Sorcerer's Apprentice segment of Fantasia in 1940, as well as several sequences of Bambi, which was in 1942. And then Algar was one of several key personnel to whom Walt Disney delegated higher executive functions during the 1950s, and he assumed the mantle of chief writer-director for Disney's True Life Adventure series, turning out such Oscar-winning documentaries as The Living Desert in 1953 and The Vanishing Prairie in 1954, and Algar became a Disney legend in 1998 and has been the recipient of the Look Magazine Movie Award for Outstanding Achievement in Production. Uh, another fun little note in here is the Headless Horseman song. Uh, it's from 1949. It was written by Don Ray and Gene DePaul and was performed by Bing Crosby and the Rhythm Airs. And I have heard so many covers of that song. There's even one um, by a guy who sounds like Popeye. I don't know if he was the original voice of Popeye. Uh, I think it's uh, Freddie Froghammer is his name. 
but uh, he has a great cover of that song. Or he 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 doesn't really he doesn't sing the singing part, but he gives the the story bit of it. So if you imagine that creepy kind of weird, like Popeye's voice being evil, that's <laughs> 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 what it sounds like. And it's, I've I've actually got this recording. It's really really great. Uh, and the funny thing is, when I first saw uh, the the Legend of Sleepy Hollow part, we actually watched it. I believe I was in first grade, and we watched it in school, and it scared me to death. <laughs> It wasn't until later that I, that I kind of was able to watch it and not freak out. But, you know, when you're a first grader, you know, that's it's still scary. So it was back in the day when you actually got to watch Disney movies in school. Heck, we even watched the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh in the first grade. Because it's a book, so it makes sense. Well, this, this movie is actually at- attached to one of my Disney bucket list items that I have not been able to do yet. And I want to go to Walt Disney World during the Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party because I want to see the parade because I want to see the Headless Horseman that leads oh, the yeah. parade. I've seen pictures, and everybody that has seen it say the pictures don't do him justice. Because I just, I, I love this film when I was little. I, it was, it was, this was one of them that seemed to always play on either CBS or ABC every Halloween as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that. They used to, I don't remember them always pairing it with Mr. Toad. Usually they would just play this because Mr. Toad's not really Halloween related. It's probably on the TV show. On the TV show, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so they used to, I'm used to it being split up, and it wasn't until I think when I, I bought the DVD of it, I was like, wait a minute, what's Mr. Toad? Then I realized, oh, this is all one feature. Uh, they just, it was, a, it was like a double feature, one hour movie. Yeah, they just uh, released it on Blu-ray here recently. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have to pick it up again then because I want the Blu-ray because I know there's going to be some more special features. Well, I know that um, I'm going to give a little shout-out to uh, Skywalking Through Neverland here because upcoming on there, Tracy and I talk about um, Disney Halloween-themed shorts. And one of those shorts that we talk about on there was on the original DVD release of... Um, of this film, and that's Lonesome Ghosts. So, yes. if you want to check our talk about there, check out uh, uh, both, uh, friends of both of our podcasts over at Skywalking Through Neverland. Links can be found at NeverlandPodcast.com. Actually, even to your show, there's a link. <laughs> so. Syn- synergy. <laughs> synergy. It's all connected. It is like it is like this is the Marvel Universe of Disney podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, what is your number one? Our number one is actually not that old. It's from 2012, uh, a movie that we talked about back in our episode 111 last October, and that's another Tim Burton film. Two Octobers ago. Two Octobers ago, October 2012, sorry, episode 111. Another Tim Burton film, and it's Frankenweenie. He was a great dog, a great friend. The best dog a kid could have. When you lose someone you love, they never really leave you. They just move into a special place in your heart. I don't want him in my heart. I want him here with me. I know. If we could bring him back, we would.
Now, I've liked the story of Frank and Weenie long before this film came out. Yeah, with that, like, uh, what was it, like a half hour short live action? Live action did? short. And going back to our talk about The Nightmare Before Christmas on that box set, Laserdisc box set, it's on there. Ooh. Yeah, this was a short film that Tim Burton put together when he worked for Disney back in the mid 80s. Um, they did have kind of a parting of the ways. He wanted to do more creative things, and his style was no longer kind of fitting into the Disney style at the time. But yes, Tim Burton is a Disney alum. Yeah, and I remember seeing that on the Disney Channel way back then, too. But uh, Frank and Weenie, um, you know, directed by Tim Burton, um, we got Catherine O'Hara. Uh, in the this film once again, she keeps showing up in Tim Burton films, I guess. And uh, but what's really great is Martin Landau in this film, kind of playing his a similar type of you know his his Bela Lugosi take that he did in Ed Wood a little bit. Yeah, I think that's fair. He's the science teacher at the school that Victor Frankenstein attends and kind of helps inspire him. But this, this film, again, is a, is a good introduction to classic monster movies. Because it, we just mentioned the main character's names of Frankenstein. There's a Van Helsing in this film. And Igor. There, there's Igor in this film. There's references to uh, Toho uh, giant monster movies, Japanese monster films. Uh, You mentioned earlier when you were talking about Young Frankenstein, the wonderful lab that that they use. In this film, they recreate that because in the film, Dr. or excuse me, um, Victor Frankenstein brings Sparky, his dog, back to life using a similar process. And if you'd imagine Dr. Frankenstein lab recreated with children's toys... And stuff you'd find in an attic. You've got Victor Frankenstein's lab. <laughs> oh, that's cool. This is on my DVR. I was waiting until this month here. I'm going to watch it this month. So it'll be my first time. There's even um, a reference to Hammer films in this uh, movie. There's a, there's a scene where Mr. and Mrs. Frankenstein are up late watching television when Victor sneaks in the house. And you see the television, and instead of being the animated, they're actually showing a scene from um, 
The uh, Horror of Dracula? The Horror of Dracula, I believe. <laughs> so Christopher Lee is actually in this film. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to ask, is it a Christopher Lee cameo? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, Frank- I thought they actually had to pay him for that, too. <laughs> now, Frank and Weenie was a film that uh, Tracy and I actually went. This was back, uh, you know, 2012 when... you. Today, if you want to see a new movie, they always say it's going to come out on Friday, but now they seem to play the movie um, 7 o'clock on Thursday night or 8 o'clock. Yeah. Well, this one was actually going to be shown at midnight the night before. It wasn't an early show and about an hour away from where we live. Ooh. But they were giving out a um, Tim Burton print of Frankenweenie, uh, actually a Sparky, an early drawing of it if, if you went to see it. So we made we made the trek down to, to Indianapolis. You know, it's mid. You know, we get there for the midnight showing. So it's you know one thirty that we got to make that hour drive home after the film. But it was oh, well. Man. Hope nobody had to go to work the next day. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. It was oh. a long day the next day. <laughs> oh, but like I said, I'm I'm a sucker for stop motion um, animation. So I love this film. I love all the homages to the classic horror films. I mean, obviously Frankenstein is all the way through this film. I mean, even, you know, at the end of Frankenstein, the monster and Frankenstein are in a windmill that catches on fire. (laughs) This one, this one ends up at a windmill at a putt putt miniature golf course, (laughs) (laughs) but it's still got, you know, that homage is going and just you know I, I loved it for all of that so love the story love Sparky just great film well the opening weekend for uh, Frank and Weenie was 11.4 million dollars and a lifetime of 35.2 million moving on though to my number one Ghostbusters Ghosts. Hello, Ghostbusters. They're real. You do? They're mean. You have? They're here. We got one! Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They catch the ghost that won't stay dead. They're armed. They're dangerous. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. All right, that's bad. Okay. All right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They're professionals. Oh. I'm the chairman of the largest paranormal removal company in America. Did you see it? They're all that stands between you and the end of the world. The city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. You want this body? Is this a trick question? Stick. 
Ghostbusters, starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis. Coming to save the world this summer. Ghostbusters. We came, we saw, we kicked it. I have to watch it every year, and sometimes multiple times a year. Love this movie. It was 1984, directed by Ivan Reitman, and written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. Recently hit its 30-year anniversary. AMC showed it, and Heather and I went to go see it one more time on the big screen, which I hadn't seen it on a big screen since seeing it at the drive-in when I was 7 years old. I loved it then. I love it now, except for now I notice the flaw in the special effects a lot. Uh, but we also noticed some background humor that we hadn't noticed uh, in, by watching it on TV that was great. Uh, but this is the interesting thing is the, the movie's concept was inspired by Aykroyd's fascination with the paranormal. And Aykroyd conceived it as a vehicle for himself and his friend and fellow Saturday Night Live alumni, John Belushi. And the original story, as written by Aykroyd, was very different from what was eventually filmed in the original version. Uh, the, the, the original was a group of ghost smashers that traveled through time, space, and other dimensions, combating huge ghosts, of which Stay Puff Marshmallow Man was one of them. Uh, they wore SWAT-like outfits and used wands instead of proton packs to fight the ghosts. And you can actually see some of these storyboards on the... Uh, it was kind of the green cover type of DVD release. I think they also did finally do a Blu-ray re- version like that. But there's a recent 30-year anniversary Blu-ray release, which I'm going to have to go and pick up just because I'm sure it will has a lot more type of things. It also, uh, but, it also has uh, Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters too. We just got it. Oh, yeah, I'm looking to definitely get that one. Because yeah, I absolutely love it. And Ghostbusters 2, I remember seeing that in the theater too. and uh, it was all, It's always been one of my favorite ones. And uh, the fun part is uh, when they started going towards the New York thing, when he started working with Harold Ramis on writing the script, uh, Aykroyd and Ramis originally wrote roles especially for Belushi and John Candy. John Candy was actually going to play Louis Tully. Hmm. But Candy wasn't able to commit to the role, and so he got replaced by Rick Moranis, and so he turned him into a geek because John Candy was, uh, let's see how they wanted him, he was supposed to be this conservative man in a business suit. Uh, that John Kenny was going to be. So he might have been maybe a little bit of a stuffed shirt type of character. And then uh, Rick Moranis got in there, did his own nerdy spin, and just completely changed the whole type of thing. Just made it a lot of fun. Um, now, the, the odd thing is, uh, Gozer was originally to appear in the film uh, as in the form of Evo Shandor, which you know they talk about there in the prison. And he was supposed to be this slender, unremarkable man in a suit. And Paul Rubens was going to play it. Ooh, interesting. Yes, that's interesting. But uh, instead, they went with the female version played by Yugoslav model Slavica Jovan, and I probably said her name completely wrong, and then uh, somebody named Patty Edwards, spelled with two Ds, gave the voice. I'm, I'm figuring that's probably a female as well. That way it still had that feminine type of quality, yet still, choose the farm of the destructor, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but it was budgeted at $32 million. Had an opening weekend of thirteen million, a little over, you know, thirteen million, and then its gross as of the twelfth of September, twenty fourteen, is two hundred twenty nine million. So it is still making all kinds of money, and that's that's going to go down in, in history as one of the just the all time greats. And uh, 
we hear rumor about a, a a third movie or maybe a potential reboot, and I'd say they have a lot to live up to. And I don't know if it'd be quite the same if they tried to continue with the same characters without having Harold Ramis in there to play Egon. So I think they waited too long. The nice thing is, is for anyone who is a gamer, you kind of got Ghostbusters 3 with that, that game they put out on the Xbox and uh, PS3. Uh, of course, there was a PS2 and a Wii version that were kind of cartoony and they were cute. But the one that was on the Xbox that I have... I love to play through that thing every year. I have a ball with it. It's great having all the original voices, all the sound effects. Uh, and plus, I, it helps you kind of understand some of the different things on how the technology works. Uh, since, Of course, since Dan Aykroyd takes this all very seriously, uh, the more you kind of look into how people who are, are into this sort of thing, uh, they believe ghosts to be made of electric energy or, or electrons, which is now why it makes sense to me that, oh, they're firing proton streams, so of course it would be a attracted to the electrons which is how they're able to capture them mm-hmm. so oh so now it all makes sense for you when you get into this sort of thing i still think I- the thing is just fun sci-fi i don't believe there is any such thing as ghosts myself but i i appreciate the thought that they put into it that how this would have to be possible right. now to go back to something you mentioned earlier that um Ackroyd had written this for belushi a role for belushi well as we all know john belushi passed away much yep. too young. Yep. He does still kind of sort of appear in the film, though, in the character of Slimer. Really? Yeah, I don't... We've, we've read that the character of Slimer was kind of meant to represent Belushi because... tribute to him. Yeah. Huh. I did not know that. If you think about his behavior, he's obnoxious. He makes a mess when he eats. And... Earlier, I mentioned about um, a children's comic, or not a comic, but an animated show, (laughs) and the real Ghostbusters with Slimer. I watched a couple episodes of that and couldn't get over the fact that now Slimer was working with them. (laughs) After he slimed them, now he's working with them. I just, I could not, I couldn't buy that, so I wasn't able to watch the, the animated show. Oh, I liked the animated show. I think part of the problem, though, that they had was it actually had started on syndication where there is an episode that explains how they come to accept Slimer as one of them. But when it was put on Saturday mornings, they didn't show that first season, actually. They started just right in the middle of things. But later on, the, on Saturday mornings, they did go back and show the first season. But they started out with the, the second season, assuming that everybody had watched it on syndication. Well, where I'm at, they didn't show it on syndication. Instead, we've got Ghostbusters from Filmation, which actually is based off of a live-action TV series they had done. And there was actually a little bit of controversy when the movie came out being called Ghostbusters. They had made a sort of a deal, an arrangement to be able to use the name. Uh, but when Filmation decided, well, this is suddenly now this popular movie, we want to bring back our characters to Ghostbusters. So they did their animated series. So when they wanted one of the movie version to be an animated series, that's of course why it became the real Ghostbusters. And calling themselves, well, we're the real ones was kind of a poke at Filmation <laughs> for putting out their series. So it's a little bit of a little uh, rivalry going on there now. Do you... Um have you seen the picture that uh, Bill Murray recently put? I can't remember if it was on Twitter or on Facebook with the Coke bottle. No, I haven't seen that. Right now, Coke is doing a thing where they have different names on the bottle, share a Coke with George, whatever. 
Well, he he had got one that said share a Coke with Dana. Aha! And he crossed it out and wrote on the bottle, there is no Dana, only Zool. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that picture, but I didn't realize Bill Murray had done it. Yes. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh, my goodness. Hey, you've gone this far talking about this film, man. You haven't mentioned Sigourney Weaver. Oh, yeah, I guess we didn't really mention her. This was, uh, oh, I got a funny story on this one as well that I got off the DVD with special features. Or maybe it was uh, somewhere else I heard this story. But uh, Sigourney Weaver was already known for being an alien. Mm -hmm. Completely different style of movie from Ghostbusters. But she wanted this part so bad that she wanted to demonstrate her ability to play Zool when Dana was supposed to be possessed. That she got up on a table on all all hands and knees and fours and like growled and everything at uh, at uh, whoever was casting. And did this whole type of weird thing and to prove that, no, look, I can do this and I can be funny. Give me a chance. thought that was an interesting story because I, I can't think- imagine... <laughs> I think she's great in this film. I mean, this yeah. is one of the first times you see that she's she's funny because, like you said, she's known for being kind of an action star, kind of a you know, woman who, who takes on the aliens. But then you see this film, and then you can see where this you know this work led on to you know Galaxy Quest and other films where she's really funny. Yeah. Plus, she's pretty good looking in this film as well. Well, let's yeah. see how how old were you in 1984, Scott? 16, 17? Yeah, I was the right age. <laughs> <laughs> well, she still looks pretty good for her age even today. You know, yes, she uh, does. <laughs> even with blonde hair in uh, Galaxy Quest, she looked pretty good with blonde hair. Oh, oh love, we love, love Galaxy, Galaxy Quest. Or she'd have to. It's a Star a, Trek parody. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one that doesn't make it. I don't have a name. <laughs> yes, if, if you ever want to talk about that show on the Neverland podcast, please consider us. Ghostbusters is another film that you can endlessly quote. Oh, yes. So, and I, and uh, do you, you have to scare the- yourself with, really. Uh, when, when Dana gets taken with the arms coming out of the, the, the chair and then the weird face in the door twisting around, like, oh, man, that's scary as heck. Yeah, there are, there are some good creepy moments yes. in this mm-hmm. So, shall we wrap up with a couple of honorable mentions of family-friendly Halloween movies? So, honorable mentions. Well, we deviated a bit from Disney here. We went with Paranorman from 2012. Which, Available on Netflix. I haven't watched it yet. Yep. And um, one thing that kind of surprised me about the film when we watched it was how it had a very strong message about the dangers of bullying. So not only was it a good story that had the supernatural elements you'd expect for this time of year, but it had a solid message to it as well. And I believe that's the one that they had for, uh, they were advertising during the Olympics and they'd have a skeleton doing the... um, Pommel horse. The pommel horse and he'd fall off and lose his arms. Yes. (laughs) Actually, it was a zombie, I think. Was it? Yeah, Yeah. because there's zombies in this film. I remember that uh, that commercial just cracked me up. (laughs) So I'm planning to watch that one here over over Halloween time as well. I'm squeezing a lot of new movies into my my regulars. Uh, I'm gonna throw for honorable mention. I gotta throw Casper in there because I generally watch that one every year too. Because uh, you know I, I I think it's a little bit underrated by some people, but uh, I I saw that I remember it in the theater and everything, and I loved watching the Casper cartoon, and uh, the way they adapted it live action, I love the design of the house you've got Eric Idle in there 
it's it's a lot of fun. It might be a little childish to some people, but I think it's a great movie. I, now the sequels, I can I can skip the straight to video sequels, but I love the original Casper movie that they made. There is something that almost would have made the list, but I thought, you know, last time I watched it, I realized, wow, I liked this as a kid, but I realized as I watched it again that there was a lot of things that were probably not necessarily appropriate for the child I was when I watched it. Uh, So there was an old movie called Monster Squad that you probably can't even find anymore. I had to track it down everywhere because my wife had never seen it. And it's fun, but there are bits in it that I'm like, yeah, that might be not necessarily family-friendly, but it is kind of fun if you're a bit older, if you can find it. Yeah, that was one of the movies that uh, I have on the list that for, I thought could fit family-friendly, but then again, I'm not sure if it could be because of a couple scenes, and that's Tremors. Yeah, <laughs> not exactly going to fit. Oh, which funny story on Tremors. Um, I think it was yeah, my mother that had told me this. That they watched it before I got a chance to see it. They had rented it, and my mother was eating tomato soup when they watched Tremors. and. <laughs> Yeah, use your imagination, you get the idea. <laughs> so my mother had to set aside her, her tomato soup, uh, which is a similar thing actually happened to uh, Lost Boy Philip around here. Uh, he was, the first time he watched Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, he was eating like a, some sort of a pasta kind of macaroni kind of thing right when Ron starts barfing up slugs, and he now can no longer eat shells and cheese or whatever he was watch- eating at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, movies have profound effects, but... We also are going back to a, a re- remake of sorts, originally a television show, The Adams Family from 1991. Yes. I will second that one. That was one I was thinking as well. Are they made from real Girl Scouts? <laughs> <laughs> that was actually, I think, this. no, that wasn't the second one. That was the first one. That was the first one, yes. yes. But they did bring back that character in the second one, which is the second one. I love that one, too. Adams Family Values. Not as good, but... Yeah, I'm more I enjoy of, the second one. I'm more of a fan of the first one, but the second one was okay. Yeah, the first one's definitely better, but the second one, uh, I love, um, and I cannot think of the actor's name, but he was also in Ghostbusters 2. Um, him as the camp counselor, this over-the-top happy guy was just, I don't know why, but that, I'd laugh hysterically at that. He's always funny. Even in that Mr. Bean movie that really wasn't very good, he was still pretty funny when he freaks out over the painting. So... <laughs> And I will probably have to look his name up and add it later. <laughs> uh, golly. Oh, and I've got to throw in also for an honorable mention, even though it's not really scary at all, but uh, Monsters, Inc., and I'll throw Monsters University in there for a two-first because it is based around monsters and scaring children, and it is monsters after all. But, yeah, nothing really scary here, but I, I use it as an excuse to watch it because I absolutely love both of those movies. Oh, me too. I, I would love to go visit Monstropolis. I love the design of that universe. And the only other thing that I would mention for this, and we've mentioned it a couple of times already, is all of the original Universal Monster films. Yeah. They're not all of the. I mean, they are scary, but they're not to the point where little kids couldn't watch them. But even if you haven't seen them, you know, a couple of our films, Frankenweenie and... Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein are good intros to those characters. If, yeah. if, maybe if your kids are just a, a shade older, they can really get these get into these films. Uh, highly recommend them, though. Don't yeah. don't scare yourself or don't not watch these films because they're a old or b in black and white because they are 
really fun to watch and great storytelling. Yeah, and they're they're not scary by like the modern standards of what oh, we find no. scary. They're not gory. Yeah, they're more about just good stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, although and, the and, yeah, the Bella Lugosi Dracula does not resemble the book at all, but it is a good movie. Yes. And it's a lot better. I mean, the Round Stroker's Dracula, yeah, they tried to follow the book a little better, but that one's a little over the top. Well, my, so. my favorite, you know, I love the both Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I really like Boris Karloff. I think he's great as the creature. Uh, he's given a little bit more personality in Bride because he's he actually speaks a few words. But love both of those films. And then, of course, The Invisible Man is great. But uh, the Mummy, Wolfman. So you forgot the Mummy. Speaking of Boris Karloff, yes, Boris Karloff and the Mummy is amazing. The eyes in that film, his his eyes are just they, they they are looking at you. I don't care what people say; he can see you through the television or video or whatever you're watching. <laughs> yeah, those are bucket list movies because I've seen Dracula and I've seen the Wolfman. I loved both of them, but I haven't gotten to see Frankenstein or the Invisible Man or the Mummy yet. But they are they're definitely on my list, which is why I'm if I can scramble some cash together, I'm buying those Blu-ray sets just because I want to watch those. Because it was it, back then, it was all about good story. Like when you watch the, uh, you know, the the newer haunting they did was pretty good, and I like the style of it. But when we watched the old black and white of the haunting a few years ago, oh my goodness, and that that movie scared me. <laughs> For an old black and white, that one is brilliant, and I actually think I still have that on my DVR. I'm going to watch that again this year. I think. Very cool. That's something I can put as an honorable mention, but that one's a little bit more, maybe more mature for older kids because it's a lot of psychological. Because there's, there's always the question of is she really seeing this stuff happening, or is the house really evil? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But another thing I definitely got to put as an honorable mention because I do love watching it every year is Hellboy. But that might be the comic book fan in me, and I have read some of the original uh, source material, some of the original comics, and it is pretty brilliant using a lot of classic old monster myth and everything and and then having the character deal with it. But uh, the first Hellboy movie is great, and it is kind of got weird kind of monsters, and uh, I love it. It's just great. Have you ever seen that one? We've seen – Yeah, we've seen them both. both. I think we saw them both in the theater. Yep, and I've heard rumors about a potential third one, and I hope they do. But they've got to do better than the second one. The second one was good, but it was nowhere near as cool as the first one. As long as they get uh, Del Toro and Ron Perlman back. Yep, and that's all it'll take. Because pretty much just about anything Del Toro makes, you could probably watch around Halloween as well. (laughs) I'd like to see him do Haunted Mansion first before a third Hellboy. Yes. Yes, please. We've been waiting ever since we heard that he was looking at the project, and every time we hear a little bit of a nugget, he says, oh, yeah, I still want to do that. We're like, then please do. Wow, neither of, us, neither of us put the Haunted Mansion film on our list. I wonder why. Uh, I, I <laughs> do sometimes pull it out and watch it for Halloween's sake, but you know, I, I mainly um, I saw the movie before I'd ever gotten into the Haunted Mansion uh, the, the attraction, but I had had the uh, the 1969 audio, and I loved the Dickens out of that. And then I found audio from the ride on different sources and everything, and so I was really kind of excited to go see the movie. And it was nice to see everything I had heard being kind of fleshed out. But uh, yeah, overall the movie is it's it's okay, but it's not as great as it should have been. <laughs> So it's not really even on an honorable mention list, although I'll probably watch it sometime this month as well. All right. 
Well, thanks again for having us on the show and letting us share our list of some of our favorite Halloween family-friendly films. Well, thanks for coming on. It's always fun having you guys on because you guys are always good at researching and know all kinds of different things about different movies and things that I'm not familiar with, so I get to learn stuff. So, And once again, in case nobody was paying attention, go to DisneyAnden.com and go subscribe on iTunes or Stitchers for their show as well because all the shows that they've mentioned where they've talked about some of these other movies, they have lots of great information about those movies if you're curious and want to know more. All right, so I hope you had some fun with it. I sure did have fun. I enjoyed talking to those two. Their show is a delight, and you should definitely check it out. But next, we need to announce the winner of our Who Was Caught on Tape at Toonfest contest. And of all the submissions I've gotten here, I have randomly selected a winner, and it is Jim Cletus. Which, funnily enough, I know who exactly who that is, and I see him every weekday. So, he will be getting our prize, and I don't even have to have him send an address. So, congratulations, Jim, and I will bring that prize to you on Monday. But for now, remember to keep that pixie in your pocket, and keep that good attitude, and spread it on to others, and uh, spread a little Halloween cheer while you're giving a little bit of your pixie dust away this week, okay? And come back next week when we're going to keep up with the holiday fun. We're going to talk about some Halloween specials, and coming up real soon, we'll also share some special audio from a couple of people who got to spend the night at the Haunted Mansion in Disneyland. Take care! Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blueberry. We love to hear from you on Twitter.com slash NeverlandPCast and Facebook.com slash NeverlandPodcast. Leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492 and send email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. Join us next week and we'll once again go to Disney and beyond. The Neverland Podcast is copyright glue band productions and all original content belongs to the same. Other content is copyright of their respective creators and is used under Creative Commons license. Pleasant dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.